This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Ezra. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Ezra, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the author of this book was a priest. His name was Ezra. And Ezra was a teacher. And, and as a teacher, you know, he was well-versed in the Mosaic law. It's also important to remember that the Lord called this priest named Ezra to lead a group of Israelites from Babylon to Jerusalem. And one reason why was because the exiles who had returned to the land 80 years earlier, well, they had already returned to the broad road that leads a person to destruction. That's right. Within one generation, the Israelites who had already returned to Israel Well, they were already turning away from the Lord. And with that being the case, the God of Israel sent Ezra to Jerusalem so that he might rebuke the people and all in the hopes that they might repent and then return to a time of religious revival. As we make our way through the text before us tonight, well, it's my hope that we would all realize that revival always begins with repentance as the people of God return to the Lord. With this as the focus, if you would, let's pick up our study of Ezra's account found here in Ezra chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. And here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Ezra, he's picking up his account by presenting the bad report that was delivered to him shortly after arriving there in Jerusalem. And according to this report, you know, the Israelites were already engaging in all of the abominations of the foreigners who had been occupying the land of promise during the time of their exile. Just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word abomination, which is found there in the middle of verse 1, was translated from a Hebrew word which was used in a religious sense in reference to the worship of idols. And the same word was also used in an ethical sense in reference to just all manner of wickedness. In order to understand what sort of abominations they were actually engaging in, well, we should just take some time to consider the list that Moses presented in the book of Deuteronomy. If you would hold your place here in the book of Ezra, and let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. As you make your way to the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord actually raised up Moses to lead the people out of the land of Egypt so that they could go and inherit the land of promise. And at the same time, though, he also forewarned them about the evil practices of the the pagan people who were actually dwelling in the land at that point in time. And and he informed them that he was uh, expecting them to abstain from all of these abominations of those nations. With that, let's consider how Moses explains it here in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You would look with me there beginning at verse 9. Here Moses declares, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, 
or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now here in these verses, we find Moses. He's presenting the people with a list of these abominations that the pagan nations were guilty of. This includes the horrific practice of child sacrifice, which would occur as unwanted babies were cast into the fires of Molech. Now, pagans today have cleaned all of this up, and we do this now in an abortion clinic. But back then, these babies that were unplanned pregnancies, well, they would just be cast into the fire of their false god. And not only were they engaged in this abomination, but this also included the practice of witchcraft, which refers to the divination that false prophets would engage in as they set out to communicate with demons. Moses also warned about these soothsayers who were, who were sort of like our modern-day fortune tellers. You know, they, they present you with personal predictions, you know, for a small fee. Moses warned the people also about those who interpret omens, and, and they would typically find magical meaning in the, in the appearance of, you know, various animals or weather patterns, or, you know, they would throw the bones or they would read the tea leaves or whatever the case. Moses also warned the people about <clears throat> the, the uh, sorcerers who would oftentimes mix astrology with divination as they whispered their magical incantations. It's also there in verse 11 where Moses warned them about those who conjure spells. And, and this was oftentimes performed with the aid of, you know, magical charms because, you know, they're always after those lucky charms. But they would use these uh, magical charms to, to bind people and, and to, you know, bring people together like these, these various love potions. And, and then they would make effigy dolls or voodoo dolls for cursing people. And, and Moses said, hey, stay away from these people. Moses warned the people about mediums, spiritists, and those who would call up the dead. And these were all people who claimed that they were able to communicate with the spirit world, whether they're talking about, you know, hey, well, I can talk to your uncle Fred, who's dead, you know, or I can uh, raise up this demon and talk to them. These people were hoping, you know, to, to talk to these spiritists and these mediums and, and these people who would call up the, the spirits of the deceased. And, and many people were just hoping to connect with, you know, their, their grandma or, or, or a loved one who had passed away. But they were failing to re realize that they were actually connecting with demons who love to deceive us. As we consider this list of evil abominations, we must not fail to notice what Moses said there in verse 12. There in Deuteronomy 18, verse 12, he says this. He says, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. They're not only engaging in abominations, but they are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. In other words, the Lord was punishing the pagan people who were there in the land of promise because they had been engaging in all of these abominations. And no doubt the Lord gave them a chance to repent, but they didn't repent and they wouldn't repent. And so when the, when the Lord released uh, the Hebrew slaves from Egypt and, and, and then led them to the promised land, he was going to bring in the, the promised, uh, you know, the, the chosen people to come and push these people out of the land. And knowing that there was going to be this time of overlap, the Lord encouraged his people that they needed to abstain from the abominations of those nations so that they might enjoy the blessings of God there in the land of their inheritance. And with that being the case, you know, the Lord also instructed them to refrain from then engaging in 
interfaith marriages. And the reason why, well, it's because the people of God are easily led astray by an unbelieving spouse. To prove my point, let's consider another passage found here in the book of Deuteronomy. If you would continue holding your place there in the book of Ezra, I'd like you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. You see, it's here in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy where we find Moses. He's actually presenting the people of Israel with an interfaith marriage prohibition. If you would look with me here at Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here the Lord declares, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And here in these verses, we find Moses, he's presenting the people of God with the Lord's instructions regarding interfaith marriages. And I, and I must stress that this is, a, uh, this is a interfaith issue, not a race issue. This is not about race. This is, this is about religion. And to prove my point, I should take a moment to remind you that there are actually three Gentile women in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right, there are three Gentile women in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This includes Tamar, who, who was the Canaanite wife of Judah. There was then Rahab, the Gentile woman from Jericho who married Salmon. And last but not least was Ruth, the Moabite, who married Boaz. As we consider these three Gentile women who are found in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, there should be no doubt that the Lord doesn't have an issue with interracial marriages. No, instead, the Lord has a problem with interfaith marriages. And the reason why is because the believer is oftentimes led astray by the one who is worshiping idols. This was precisely the point that Moses was making here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Notice again here in verse 3, he declares, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their, their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You see, this isn't a race issue. This is a religion issue. If a believer marries an unbeliever, the unbeliever is going to lead the believer to start serving false gods. He says, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. The believer who marries an unbeliever is unequally yoked, to put it in the words of Paul. The believer is yoked to God, then they're yoked to their spouse, but their spouse isn't yoked to the Lord. And this makes them unequally yoked. And you better believe that the believing spouse will feel a stronger pull from their unbelieving spouse who's headed in the wrong direction. 
And it's sad to say that this oftentimes causes the believer to backslide as they attempt to please their unbelieving spouse because that's what, that's what we try to do. We try to please our spouse. And that's what was happening there in Israel. We, we find these Israelites who were there after the release from their Babylonian captivity and, and after some time there in the land of promise, they start engaging in these interfaith marriages. And they're being led astray to follow false gods. According to the report that Ezra had received, many of the leaders and the rulers there in Israel were actually marrying the immoral people of the pagan nations. And as a result, they were beginning to to, to practice the abominations of those idolaters. They married unbelievers, and then they started engaging in the abominations practiced by those unbelievers. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by Ezra's reaction after learning about the interfaith marriages which were taking place there in Jerusalem. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Ezra chapter 9. Here we find Ezra responding to this bad news. And I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 3 where Ezra writes, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I went to Burlington Coat Factory. And no, that's that's not what happened. He says, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. Here in these verses, we find Ezra responding to the report with stunned astonishment. That word astonished, which is found there at the end of verse 3, was translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who were awestruck and appalled. The same word was used to describe those who are devastated by the the horrific bad report that they just heard. And, And that's exactly how Ezra reacted to this news. We should also notice the way that he demonstrated the deep sorrow that devastated his soul. And we see that uh, demonstrated there in verse 3, where Ezra tore his clothes and he plucked hairs from his head and from his beard. These were both cultural expressions designed to demonstrate grief and mourning. We also learn that Ezra sat in this state of astonishment until the evening sacrifice. He didn't eat all day. And it was at that point in time when he finished his fast, when he fell on his knees and spread out his hands to the Lord. In this way, he was helping others to see, you know, the other people who had assembled around him. He was helping them to see that they all needed to seek the mercy of the Lord for these trespasses. With all of this in mind, I can't help but to think of something that the Lord presents in Joel chapter 2. There he declares this, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. In other words, listen, the the Lord isn't so moved by crocodile tears of those who really aren't repentant. 
And that's oftentimes what happens when, when someone finds themselves in a, in, in a you know, tough situation because of the sins that they've been committing. And, and next thing you know, they're, they're being pulled over while drunk driving or they're being you know, uh, you know, harassed you know, after putting themselves in, in a bad situation. And, and the crocodile tears come, not because they're sad about their sin, but they don't like the situation. God's not impressed. Everyone else might be impressed. Everybody else might be heartbroken for you and, and feel bad for your situation, but God sees what's really in the heart. And you can tear your clothes all day long, but if there's not real repentance in the heart, God's not impressed. Knowing that the Lord our God is able to see what's actually happening in our hearts, well, then we would do well to spend less time worrying about the outward expression of sorrow and instead, we ought to make sure that we're actually returning to the Lord with our whole heart, with complete repentance. I like the way that King David put it in the 34th Psalm. It's verse 18 where he declares, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Not those who weep crocodile tears, but those who truly have a broken heart. And David says that he saves such as have a contrite heart spirit. Christian, listen, regardless of whether we rip our clothes or not, regardless of whether we have the outward signs of sorrow or not, our Savior is here to support those who are truly brokenhearted about their sins. And our Redeemer will rescue those whose spirits are crushed over their own guilt. And those who will truly repent will then also experience revival. This was precisely the promise that the prophet Isaiah presented in Isaiah chapter 57. There he declares, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In other words, the Lord has promised to bring revival to those who will humbly repent of their sins. And it's for this reason that Ezra led the people in, in a prayer of repentance. And with this in mind, let's take some time to consider the prayer of repentance that Ezra offered on behalf of the people there in Israel. If you would look with me there again, uh, there at Ezra chapter 9. Let's pick up our study beginning at verse 6. Here Ezra cries out to the Lord, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. I want to stop right there. I want to consider the way that Ezra was leading the people into this prayer of repentance. And he begins by humbly confessing the humiliation that he felt after realizing uh, you know, how sinful the people had become and after learning about the shameful sins of his people who were you know, marrying in with, with the pagan nations and knowing that the guilt of their sins had reached all the way up to the heavens. Ezra showed his shame by bowing his head before the Lord. He acknowledges you know, how, how many sins they've committed that their sins would be stacked all the way up to the throne of God. And so he just bows his face to the dirt. 
And as we consider the humility that Ezra expressed in this prayer, you know, I can't help but to remember what James wrote in the fourth chapter of his epistle where James declares, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Christian, listen, those who approach the Lord with a prideful heart, well, he's not listening. You think God, your creator, is impressed with your pride? No. How silly. You know, we get caught up in this idea of, of how great we are. and Really? How great are we? In comparison to God, we're nothing. We're like grasshoppers. We're like ants. We need to humble ourselves when we approach the Lord. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who humble themselves before the Lord will be embraced, and not only embraced, but exalted. We should also notice how Ezra acknowledged the amazing grace of God here in this prayer. And So let's pick up our study of the prayer beginning at verse 8. Here Ezra confesses, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now here in these verses we find Ezra, he's proclaiming gratitude for the grace that the Lord had bestowed upon them. It's important to remember that grace is the unearned, unmerited favor of God. And while it's true that the remnant deserved to remain in their captivity for the rest of their lives, well, the Lord, he enlightened their eyes, he opened their eyes, and he revived their spirit so that they might return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple during a time of revival. Sadly, it didn't take long for the remnant who once enjoyed this religious revival, didn't take long for them to return to the same sins that brought their forefathers into the bondage of Babylon. And it's for this reason that Ezra was quick to acknowledge that the Lord didn't forsake his people. No, instead it was the people who were guilty of forsaking the merciful Lord. God didn't forsake his people. They, they, they forsook him. And this is precisely the point that Ezra goes on to present here in this prayer. As a matter of fact, look with me there beginning at verse 10. Here Ezra declares, And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. Here in these verses, we find Ezra confessing the sins of those who had forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And to be more specific, Ezra then acknowledges the fact that the people were failing to follow the instructions that the Lord had presented back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Well, remember, he commanded the chosen people to abstain from the abominations of the pagan nations by refraining from engaging in interfaith marriages. Yeah, they ignored all that. And they forsook the commandments of the Lord. And they engaged in these interfaith marriages. 
To prove my point, I would point you back to the middle of verse 1. There again, we learn that the people of Israel and the priests of the, and the Levites had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. Rather than obeying the word of God, and rather than maintaining spiritual separation from the abominations of the pagan nations, people of God, instead, they, they, they disobeyed the clear instructions of Moses. And, and as we consider the, the time frame, just consider the time frame here between the day of their return from Babylon until the rebuke of Ezra, we can see that all this took place within a matter of 60 years. From revival to rebellion, 60 years. I'll remind you, it was actually 537 BC when the Lord revived the remnant of Israel and that's when the first group of exiles returned to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the temple. Then after dealing with government red tape and issues with the locals, you know, the temple was finally finished in 515 BC and it was at that point in time when the people of God experienced real revival as the temple was dedicated to the Lord. Then 57 years later, after the dedication, Ezra arrived only to discover that the Israelites were already engaging in the abominations of the pagan nations. And so we see that the remnant went from revival to rebellion in less than 60 years. It doesn't take long, does it? With that being the case, Ezra ended this prayer by asking the Lord just to do what was right in his eyes. As we consider these final verses, it's clear to me that Ezra, he doesn't even feel right about praying for forgiveness. He's just like, God, just do whatever you think is right. Let's consider how Ezra puts it here in Ezra chapter 9. Look with me there, beginning at verse 13. Here Ezra prays, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Wow, just the, the, the honest admission that what they deserve is to just be consumed. And yet he just stands there confessing his guilt before God and saying, whatever you choose is right. Whatever you decide is the right thing. In this, we find Ezra expressing his heartfelt shame as he confessed the way in, in, in which, <clears throat> excuse me, in which the remnant of Israel you know, had, had taken for granted the deliverance of the Lord. the Lord. The Lord delivered them, allowed them to leave Babylon, come back to Jerusalem, and, and within 60 years, after, after the dedication of the temple, they're right back to the same old sins. And while it's true that the Lord had withheld the full measure of the punishment they deserved, it's also true that they were guilty of returning his favor by returning to their sinful ways. And with that being the case, Ezra just acknowledges the fact that 
It's only by the grace of God that he would allow them to remain a remnant there in the land of promise. As we consider the confession that Ezra presents here in this prayer of repentance, I believe that we would all do well to recognize that apart from the grace of God, none of us could stand before the Lord. If if that's not something you really grasp yet, please understand that apart from God's grace, we would just be completely destroyed because of our sinfulness. Apart from the grace of God, not one of us would be able to stand before the Lord our God. And the reason why is because of our evil deeds and our great guilt. That being the case, I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5. It's there where he declares, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we receive the unearned grace of God, which then enables us to have peace with God and the hope of glory. And while every born-again believer can rejoice in knowing that Jesus has delivered us from his righteous wrath, we must not forget that, remember, it doesn't take long for the people of God to go from revival to rebellion. Yeah, that's not just true of Israel. That's true of us. That's true of the church. Just look what's happening in the church today. How long does it take for us to go from revival to rebellion? Not too long. And it's possible on on an individual level that there are some here tonight who are actually moving, even as I speak, from revival to rebellion. It might be that maybe at the last retreat or maybe at the last you know, event that you went to, the, maybe at some point in time in, in, in the near past, you had that hilltop experience where you were revived in the spirit of the Lord. And it's only been backsliding ever since. It's so easy for us to move from revival to rebellion because of our sins. This sounds like your spiritual situation tonight. I encourage you to remember something that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 57. Remember, it's there where the Lord declares, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. It's possible that you need to experience a personal revival even tonight. And with that, it's with a a word of encouragement that I encourage you to, to look to the Holy One of Israel, the one who dwells in the high and holy place. Approach him with a contrite and humble spirit and he will revive you. Follow in the footsteps of Ezra by humbly and prayerfully confessing your sins with a broken and a contrite heart. And then as we cry out to the Lord with heartfelt repentance, he will revive our spirit. Because he's promised to revive the spirit of those who truly humble themselves before the high and lofty one whose name is holy. Let's pray.